Well, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, thank you for coming to the second in our series of lunchtime lectures for this autumn. Um, it's a great pleasure to introduce Elle Larson, who is a graduate of the Royal Holloway University of London's Public History MA. Her research interests lie broadly in 19th and 20th century British history, and with a particular interest in the presence of animals and what looking at human-animal relationships can tell us about the past. Building on her former research, she is about to begin a PhD at King's College London this autumn, and she's going to examine the um, Lord Walter Rothschild's work as a zoologist, collector and curator of his own natural history museum at Tring. Um, today, Elle's going to talk to us about Jamrak's exotic menagerie, the Noah's Ark of the East End. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, good afternoon, everyone, and thank you, Jane, for that introduction. Um, thank you all for coming along to hear about uh, Charles Jamrak, who I find incredibly fascinating, so I hope you guys will as well. Um, when I was assigned the presentation topic of the Ratcliffe Highway in my third year of undergraduate study and first came across Yamrak's exotic animal trading business for the first time, I could never have imagined that um, the project would go on to form the basis of my dissertation and MA thesis, leading me to make the, what we describe in the sort of humanities world as the animal turn and to re-examine the ways in which I view um, the legacies of empire. That chance discovery really changed the focus of my work as a historian and ever since, I've been visiting various archives and museums to try and piece together this man's extraordinary life and his involvement in the exotic animal trade. Um, and some of those themes, characters and events, um, I hope to be able to introduce you to over the course of this hour. But before we really get started, um, the main focus of my presentation will be on the sort of mid to late 19th century. Um, but the presence of exotic animals in London and in Britain reaches much farther back than that, um, and I don't think it would be right to sort of not mention it. Um, it's a history that predates the commercial animal traders that came to later characterise the industry, um, and this top image here comes from um, an image of the Royal Menagerie, once it was housed at the Tower of London, um, and that was established in the 13th century under the reign of King John, and is a, was a source of entertainment and curiosity for the royal court for over 600 years, um, later being open to members of the public, and they were attracted by, um, sort of, they could feed them scraps of meat and things, the lions and the tigers that you can see in the illustration. Um, and in fact, some of the Hunterian Museum's own collection uh, contains some of the specimens from the Royal Menagerie, John Hunter having used his position as surgeon to King George III to gain access of the bodies of these deceased royal gifts. Now, some of you may know, the Royal Menagerie um, was closure was ordered in 1832 after a series of attacks on visitors and staff, and all remaining animals were sent to the newly established zoological gardens. Times were changing, and the demise of the Royal Menagerie can be seen to coincide with an unprecedented boom in the sale of animals as large and new exotic species began to arrive in London on an almost daily basis. But the reason I've brought your attention to the Royal Menagerie is because it provides one of the earliest examples of animal trading in the form of political gifting. 
the exchange of animals between monarchs and members of the aristocracy to show power and patronage. A trade, if you like, that can still on occasion be seen today, um, our own queen having been gifted a range of animals throughout the course of her own reign. And I really hope that with the upcoming celebrations, there aren't more. Um, but that has included, over time, jaguars and sloths from Brazil, black beavers from Canada, and young giant turtles from the Seychelles, most of which also ended up in London Zoo. So you see a continuation of a pattern there. So at one time, political gifting would have been the most likely reason to have seen exotic animals in London and in Britain, and it's remained a central part of that trade um, throughout its history. But in addition to this method, animals were also being brought into London for other means. Um, and you can see the bottom image here shows a rather wonderful image of um, Polito's Royal Menagerie, which was once on the Strand. And this is just one of a number of private collections and travelling menageries that existed prior to the sort of 1830s, um, many of which toured the country ordering, offering ordinary folk glimpses um, at unfamiliar and spectacular beasts that these uh, businessmen and showmen were able to obtain when the opportunity presented itself. Because uh, that's what really defined the exotic animal trade during this period, the fact that it was heavily fragmented, unorganised and very opportunistic. People and institutions who wanted living and dead specimens would have had to rely on the initiative and word of individuals, perhaps travelling naturalists, naval officers and merchants who would independently source and return with specimens to sell. It wasn't until we move into the 19th century that this process really began to professionalise and exotic animals really began to pour into Britain on an unprecedented scale. The people of London were offered new and plentiful opportunities to come face to face with creatures from afar, whether it be, as in the case of these spectators here, with people standing at the dockside and watching as the newest uh, shipments were unloaded, by standing outside Yamraks and looking as the animals were in the window of his shop for sale, or by visiting one of the few zoological collections that have begun to admit an inquisitive public. Now, this surge in trading was largely due to the fact that the Victorian in the Victorian period, the exotic animal trade emerged as an important part of empire building. Animal capture began to represent the conquest of distant and exotic lands, and the display of those newly acquired specimens in the rapidly expanding zoos and natural history museums acted as a demonstration of this imperial might. As the 19th century progressed, the character of this industry can therefore be seen changing significantly, and specialised traders began to emerge who used their growing demand for exotic specimens to form their very own unique businessmen. And Charles Yamrak was one of these individuals, who had 164 Ratcliffe Highway, or 179180 St George's in the East, as it would later become, in the heart of East End, were the business premises of these renowned naturalists and dealer in exotic animals, bird skins and shells, whose intuitive business sense saw him dominate the animal trade and become one of the main suppliers of zoos, menageries, circuses and private collectors across the world. But just how did this man, who, I don't know what you make of him, um, get, find himself in such a position? Well, for the Yamraks, animal trading was very much a family enterprise. Um, Charles had been born in March 1815 in the German city of Hamburg, where his father Johann had first established an animal trading business. 
Harbour Master and Chief of the Hamburg River Police, Johann Yamrak had observed a large number of animals and um, eastern curiosities that passed through the dock and recognised the opportunity for a new business venture. He soon began trading in these commodities and established his own business, Handel's Menagerie, at 19 Spielbudenplatz in the St Pauli area of Hamburg. Inspired by his success, um, Johann then sent his eldest son Anton to London in the hope of establishing a similar branch of the business in East Smithfield. However, things didn't get off to a particularly good start, and shortly after his arrival in 1839, Anton died to be succeeded by his brother Charles, who arrived in London the following year. And this is when things um, for the Yamraks in London really took a, cha a change of direction. Um, for a man of action, Charles relocated the family business from East Smithfield to the Ratcliffe Highway, um, which if any of you are familiar with sort of the, the geography, it's much nearer the docks than East Smithfield. Um, and it was an intuitive decision for which the Otago Witness later reported responsible for practically giving Yamrak a monopoly. For then, there being no Suez Canal, English ports were always those first touched by homeward-bound vessels. And as such, Yamrak quickly built his reputation as the doyen of animal importers. And you can see here some of the letterheads of the various different members of the family. So you've got Charles in the top here. And then you've got his eldest son, Anton, who branched out into uh, 218 East India Road, so further east. And then his other son, Albert Edward, who would later take after over the business of Charles. So... As I say, it was a reputation that didn't stop with Charles, and he also had another son, William, who went into North London and set up his own business, establishing in um, trading even in, e in Stoke Newington. So at the height of its operation, um, Charles's menagerie operated from three premises. Um, you've got a bird shop and museum in St George's Street, which is the one that you'll have seen pictures of, which runs along here. We've then got the Menagerie in Bet Street, which is where the larger animals were stored, which is this street here. And then we've got a warehouse um, in Old Gravel Lane, which runs down here. And you can see the main London dock there and East London dock. So he was in a very good position um, with the three businesses he had. And accounts describe how these buildings were always bustling with specimens of exotic species and ancient artefacts from across the globe, which Yamrak hoped to sell to both amateur and professional naturalists. In one recollection, for example, Francis T. Buckland wrote, Lovers of natural history who wish to see the headquarters of the animal trade, where wild animals and curious birds are received and distributed to all parts of the world, should certainly pay Mr. Yamrak a visit. A pretty glowing reference, I think. Over the 50 years he was in business, Yamrak established a network that allowed him to source and obtain almost any obscurity that was asked of him. The survival of the business depended solely on the receipt of imports, and in the early days, just as his father had relied on the sailors passing through the port of Hamburg, Charles was very much reliant on the sailors that were coming into London. Um, initially, um, trading was therefore rather very informal, um, but no, owing to Yamrak's permanent place of address, these sailors were able to return there time and time again when they came ashore with the you know, uh, animals or eastern curiosities that they'd picked up along the way. Um, and it proved very lucrative for them. They were able to 
trade, earn extra money. Um, and it's said in some accounts that some sailors were actually fortunate enough to retire on the fortunes made in this irregular traffic of animals and articles that such an establishment encouraged. But as you'd expect, as this profitability became more and more apparent, um, the trade, certain men, just as Yamrak's father had done, acknowledged this and started to sort of emerge as uh, a group of middlemen um, who specialised in live animals and who began to encourage the rapid professionalisation and competitiveness that came to characterise the industry. And like Yamrak, these men sought to expand their businesses. Um, they began to employ runners who were charged with the responsibility of racing to meet incoming ships um, once they heard that they were about to dock to ensure that their employer would be the one to secure any of the rarities that were on board. As the Otago witness reported, runners were then rewarded on the basis of this information and on the animals that they actually brought back. Um, Charles Yamrak claiming, um, being said to have paid a runner as much as five pounds, but also as low as some as one shilling. Procuring animals therefore became very tactical um, and very competitive. And business operations began to rely upon this knowledge of the runners going out and finding out what was coming back in. And it wasn't a very good position for the dealers to be reliant on the sailors. And actually, they started to change the way in which they operated and made themselves the ones in control. So they actually started issuing um, shopping lists, if you like. So they would find out what was in need or what was in demand. The sailors would then come to them and ask for what that was, and they'd go out and get it. So the, the naturalists went in the position of power. Um, and Yamrak wasn't having to, I don't know, be sold a chimpanzee and then be stuck with it for three months because he couldn't pass it on. Um, things had a very quick turnover once you get the shopping lists introduced. Um, and the runners were essential to that, again. Um, many of them being stationed, as time went on, in overseas ports rather than just in ports in London. So they had that extra time and extra lead-in time to find the customer when they came back. By developing such a network and reducing their dependence on sailors, dealers like Yamrak put themselves in control. Um, and... I'm going to repeat myself now. I'm really sorry. We'll move on. So this is the sorts of scenes you'd find when animals were brought back. And you can see the sort of difficulty in unloading some of these cargo. They didn't want to be here. Docks were noisy, smelly, not very inviting places. And many of these animals would have been on long convoys. Um, so we've got that one for you. And then here's another fantastic image, um, which is taken from the Illustrated Sporting and Dramatic News. And it's one um, artist's interpretation of sorts of goings on inside Yamrak's businesses. Um, for it was one that captured a, a large amount of interest from both artists, um, naturalists, and journalists who would often pay Yamrak a visit. Um, he's described as being not very difficult to access and that he's usually willing to give visitors with proper credentials an opportunity of seeing this remarkable establishment. Um, so he'd welcome them in and you'd often, there's a few sketches like this and most of the images that I'll show you today have come from articles where somebody's gone along because they've heard about the reputation of the Strand. 
So there's a few things I can point out to you. So George here is um, Yamrak, described as being Yamrak's sort of right-hand man. Um, and often when Charles or his son Albert aren't around, George will be the one to show these journalists around. Um, and he seems to be quite an eccentric character. Um, I think in his spare time, he did quite a lot of boxing. So he likes to recount those stories in these, um, in these articles. Um, and then you can see over here, we've got people sketching the animals. Um, it was a way to sort of introduce these new species to as many people as possible by going along, drawing it, and, and getting it out into the, I don't know, into society. Um, and a lot of those come um, through the Illustrated London News. You get quite a lot of fascinating um, illustrations that you can see of animals arriving in London um, in that publication. And then also you've got other things like the difficulties of storing the animals. Now, Yamraks was on two floors. Um, the lower floor was a museum with sort of the articles um, and artefacts that he had. And then the animals were on the second floor. Um, how you'd get them upstairs was a bit hazardous, I think. And I think that's probably one attempt through the upstairs window or I don't know what you'd call the doors um, into the attic. Um, yeah, I think it's a nice image. Um, so, with the supply chain established, Yamrak then had to build a customer base within Britain and overseas to whom he could sell on his purchases. Now, natural history was big business in the 19th century and, was, and not just in Britain, but was of global interest. Um, and therefore, the customer would sometimes be known, um, Yamrak having acted on commission, but in other instances, he would have to find himself a buyer. Now, the Reverend Harry Jones gives a, a very interesting account of his interactions with Yamrak um, and describes how he didn't advertise um, his new stock so much as royally announce his new arrivals. Um, Yamrak would spend, send personal correspondences to friends and acquaintances, issue the occasional newspaper advertisement, um, but more often he'd write very frequently to the Secretaries of the Zoological Society um, and to the Director of the Natural History Museum both of whose archives illustrate a complex relationship, um, one that involved the negotiation of sales um, in both directions, so Yamrak selling to them, but also them selling to Yamrak, the regular exchanging of information, as well as the society's facilities, um, the use of the society's facilities to temporarily house some of Yamrak's stock. So if he was particularly busy and didn't have space for them, um, they'd put them in the gardens, um, sometimes end up buying them themselves. They'd prove to be a bit of a hit with, with, with visitors and they'd keep them on. In other instances, it was just a stopgap before they were moved on. Um, so there's a box of snakes that arrives there um, and is eventually sold to Lord Lilford. Now, this, the nature of this correspondence is something I hadn't really appreciated the uniqueness of until quite recently, um, when I discovered that subsequent to Charles's death, his son... Um, who later inherited the business, began to frequently put newspaper advertisements in the paper. And I don't mean every couple of weeks, it was every week, same day, same time, every week, um, with the newest stock. And that struck me as a little bit odd and unusual, because I thought, if it was so important later on, why wasn't Charles implementing the same technique? Um, and I think it's likely to be because of the changes that began to occur um, once Albert took over the business, um, making it harder to secure sales as you've got this international competition, which we'll come on to later, um, and marketing 
through newspapers became that much more essential. Um, but I also wonder whether Charles had really appreciated the importance of the relationship that he was building up with the secretaries of the zoological societies, the private collectors, um, many of them over decades. Um, and perhaps that's why he invested this great deal of time in the personal and direct correspondences. Um, perhaps he wasn't blowing his own trumpet, as I thought, in the fact that he was royally announcing these arrivals. But actually, he was making a rather intuitive and smart business sense, um, decision that really stood him in good stead throughout the course of his, his trading years. Regardless of these motives, um, Yamrak's methods proved to be highly effective. And he was fortunate to count amongst his customers uh, Lord Walter Rothschild, Lord Derby, and Frank, Buck Frank Buckland, all prominent enthusiasts and collectors of natural history. But you've also got him selling to ordinary people who can afford to have an exotic pet, um, but also cultural figures, um, such as Dante Gabriel Rossetti, um, to whom Yamrak supplied a number of animals for his um, menagerie in Cheney Walk, supposedly including the wombat that's featured in this sketch here, um, which was named Top. Um, and if you read the text here, I never reared a young wombat to glad me with his pinhole eye, but when he was most sweet and fat and tailless, he was sure to die. So it's a pen and ink drawing that Rossetti did to sort of express his grief at the loss of his beloved pet, Top. So, death. As you'd expect, death was both a friend and foe of the animal dealer. Um, so the taxidermist would have been another frequent customer for, for a dealer such as Yamrak, um, for long transport crossings, harsh winters, and inadequate diets, causing, as one newspaper describes, many creatures to go the way of all flesh, with one account describing how 80% of one particular consignment never made it to England alive. So, on a bit of a tangent, I guess a good question to answer at this moment um, would be, did Yamrak supply any, uh, or did Yamrak trade with the Hunterian Museum itself? Um, and I really hoped to be able to stand here and say, yes, he did, and give you some wonderful images of invoices or even specimens, but that would be too lucky for a historian. Um, and unfortunately, I can't seem to find any evidence that he did, and in fact, it seems the museum board were obtaining their specimens through different channels. And what I, from what I could tell, they had very few direct dealings with commercial animal dealers. Um, as I mentioned at the beginning, John Hunter obtained some of his early specimens from the Royal Menagerie. Um, Joseph Banks gave a large donation of specimens he'd obtained on his voyage with Joseph Cook, Joseph Cook? James Cook. Um, and that method seems to be how many of the specimens were obtained by the museum through private donations. Now, whether Charles was supplying that individual, I don't know. Um, and that's something I actually would really like to sort of look into a bit more. Um, perhaps the fact that he was bringing many things back alive prevented him from trading with the Hunterian because it would be the wrong, it needed to be a specimen rather than a living creature. So maybe there's a middle step there. Um, Yamrak sending to the Zoological Society and then it coming here. I don't know, but um, it's something I'd really like to look into a bit more. The only evidence I did manage to find of a Yamrak in the archive um, was a joint letter that his son Albert had written 
with his neighbour and close competitor, um, a guy called John Hamlin. Um, and it appears the two were trying to write an article on the anatomy of an okapi, um, and they were looking for a specimen of a smaller antelope to compare that anatomy to. So I'm very sorry. I was very disappointed. I spent the best part of a week hoping to find something, and no such luck. So I was actually a little bit surprised as well in the lack of evidence that came out of that research. Um, just because Yamrak seems to have been trading with quite a few of the leading museums and institutions. So I think there's got to be a, different, a, a middle link there. So leave it with me. Maybe we will find that out in a few years. So back to taxidermists um, and furriers. The zoomorphic uh, furniture trade was another um, branch, if you like, um, of trade for Yamrak. Um, many of these animals did die, sadly on the way back, um, but that didn't mean there wasn't a demand for them. If they weren't coming into museums, they could be turned into animal trophies, or rather morbidly, this trend in zoomorphic furniture, which you can see the examples behind me, which um, witnessed a surge in popularity during the 1960s. Defined as a useful item made from all or part of a used, um, previously living animal without changing its forms, um, you can see these examples. So you've got a giraffe chair there, um, a monkey candlestick, and there's actually quite a harrowing account of um, Yamrak supplying th these monkeys, but actually the customers that wanted them would go to Yamraks, go into the back room, pick the living monkey that they wanted based on the characteristics or patterns that it displayed, um, and then it would be taken down the road to the taxidermists, killed and made into whatever the item was that they wanted. Um, yeah. However horrific it might appear, um, it was another valuable um, opportunity that added a profitable dimension to Yamrak's business. He was covering as many bases as he could for the animals that he had, and it did prove quite successful for him as a businessman. So, for those of you that might be familiar with some of the more prominent naturalists during the 19th century, um, I think one of the notable contrasts um, in terms of Yamrak is the lack of revenue that supported his exploits. He may have been making money as a businessman later on, but in the early days he really was moving from sale to sale and didn't have a huge profit um, to play around with. So, when you compare him to the likes of Charles Darwin, um, who could afford to make natural history his life's work, Yamrat's contribution could never realistically have equated, I don't think. Um, but in a sort of paradox, that's also what I find really, really interesting about him as a, as a character, is that he overcame those difficulties and that, that lack of revenue to make himself and his business um, invaluable to the study of natural history. And that's something I haven't really seen with any of his competitors. He didn't just inherit a business that allowed him to act as this indispensable intermediary between natural history's practitioners and its suppliers, but he also was at times allowed to be both a colleague and actually revered as an expert. Um, and that's quite unusual, I think, for people without a scientific training. He was able to bridge this social divide. I, 
I still don't quite understand how, but he really did. Um, and by doing so, it made a significant contribution to the expansion of information, and one that you could argue was recognised by his contemporaries in the fact that several species were named after him and his family. Um, this included, now forgive me if your Latin pronunciation is better than mine, the Cerecebus yamraki, which is today known as the Johnston's mangabee, um, and the rhinoceros yamraki, or Indian rhinoceros. Now these names have since been lost in synonymy, but they provide us with some evidence of how highly regarded he was amongst the scientific community during the 19th century. Um, and he's often described as being a respected authority on species classification, technique for capture, and dietary advice. Um, and that sort of knowledge was certainly a tool of empowerment for a trader in Yamrak's line of business, and the importance of value of having that intimate knowledge of the animals and birds he was involved in trading is something Yamrak would have undoubtedly been aware of, and that really helped him to build this impressive reputation. Although, again, to a fewer contradiction, um, this image may cause you to question the accuracy of the, that expertise somewhat. Um, and you can see here this crocodile being rather manhandled by two of Yamrak's attendees, despite the fact um, that the article assures us that this treatment, and that word is a quote, you can see that the fourth mill treatment down here, um, was in the interests of the beast itself um, in order to help the crocodile overcome the starvation diet they put themselves on when they are captured. Um, or to quote the article, to reform and become a respectable, respectable crocodile taking regular meals and is in time promoted to the zoological gardens or respected menagerie. It's, it's a time, the Victorian period is a time of sort of that, that emergence of animal rights. Um, and I think we'd be right to assume that if this sort of treatment had been wider knowledge, Yamrak would certainly have come under some scrutiny. So I've talked a lot about Yamrak, and I'm a little bit biased about him because I find him so interesting. Um, but it would be wrong not to give you sort of the bigger picture. Um, and here are some of the competitors that Yamrak had during this time. Now, Henry Mayhew observed a large number of street sellers selling some of the smaller animals um, on the streets of London, including birds, beasts, fish, and reptiles. But it's these figures you can see behind me here who really... Um, offered the competition to an established business like Yamrak's. Um, I don't have a picture of William Cross, unfortunately, um, but he was uh, the most prolific trader in Liverpool. Um, but you've also got Yamrak's sons, obviously. He probably would have been quite collaborative with them, um, but also there is that competitive edge. You want to be the one to provide the specimen and get the sale. Um, you've also got John Hamlin down here, who is the gentleman that I said we found evidence of in the archive here. Um, and he's famous for instigating the chimpanzee tea parties um, and sort of training and supplying London Zoo with those chimpanzees. And the documents that they have here actually show some of the images of this on the back of their letterheads. It's almost, it's not really a letterhead, it's almost like an advert in itself. Um, and you can see him and some of his employees sat with these chimpanzees on on his knee and in this enclosure, fully dressed. So they're quite anthropomorphized. Um, but the guy that I really have to talk to you about is Karl Hagenbeck. Now, he's another individual of German origin, um, but he really emerged later on as Yamrak's main rival. 
So, as I previously mentioned, Yamrak moved to London in 1840, but his father, back in Hamburg, Johann, um, had continued to manage the business until his own death in 1863. But rather than go back, um, the Yamraks sold the business, and they sold it to Karl Hagenbeck's father. And together, Karl and his father became the leading exotic animal traders in Germany. And anybody familiar with the name might know that um, Karl Hagenbeck's often credited with the birth of modern zoo, um, as well as trading in animals. He sort of started um, a forward-thinking zoological garden in Hamburg, um, where there weren't meant to be any obvious barriers, so all the enclosures were designed at different levels, so it, you were meant to see them as if they were in their natural habitats. So that's, but that's much later. Um, it's the early days. We'll take you back. Um, the Hagenbecks quickly expanded their business and spent valuable time securing their own contacts in uh, European ports and were assisted in their efforts by, opening the, uh, by the opening of the Suez Canal some years previously in 1859, which had led to the redistribution of shipping routes um, to incorporate southern European ports, meaning that the concentration of prime stock in London began to dissipate. Dealers were forced to go head-to-head -head in foreign ports to secure incoming shipments, and British dealers lost their advantage. Um, I read an article yesterday, in fact, um, where Ham um, Hagenbeck says, quite outrightly, Yamrak was too slow at getting there before me. Um, I pipped him to the post because I'm in Hamburg and he's in London. We can, he was too slow in getting to Frankfurt. So there is that real sense of rivalry when you read accounts of them talking about each other. Um, and the Germans were also supported by the imperial expansion of their, um, their empire. Um, and this brought the, the British and the German empires into direct competition. You can see that political significance of the trade um, really coming to the forefront again um, at this time. So... In addition to the rivalry that grew out of this rise of imperialism uh, as the 19th century progressed, you also begin to see that um, London acted somewhat as an, uh, an entrepot. So rather than just being a place to where the animals came, it was actually a place of transition. And they weren't in London a particularly long time before being moved to other parts of the country, but also onto the continent, to the States, um, and out into the Far East. Um, and as such, Yamrak's customer base reflects this. Um, and in one account, um, it's described that only one in 12 of Yamrak's sales were actually London or UK-based, the other 11, because 11 bits, being based in the USA, in the continent, um, and with Indian sultans and Arabian princes, um, for just as sort of members of the British aristocracy wanted these animals for their menageries, so did their international counterparts. And with this in mind, um, it seems somewhat inevitable um, that the exotic animal trade became even more politically significant than it had in the past, when we saw with political gifting. Um, but Yamrak's own menagerie became directly implicated um, in a political affair after this unfortunate accident. Now, most people that have heard of Yamrak before know of him because of this incident. Um, when, on the 26th of October, 1857, a tiger escapes the confines of its cage when being transported 
and made its way onto the Ratcliffe Highway, where it proceeded to attack a young boy. And you can see this young boy named John Wade um, in, the claw, in the jaws of the tiger here. Now, Yamrak, different accounts offer you different descriptions, um, but Yamrak is said to have led the pursuit of the big cat, eventually subduing the animal and ensuring the boy's safe release. However, significantly, this event coincided with the Indian mutiny of the same year and became somewhat of a media sensation. A large number of images began to enter circulation in the wake of the incident, and questions about the nature of British rule in its overseas territories were brought into the very heart of London. In the eyes of Victorian society, the tiger neither feared man nor showed him respect, and was therefore seen to be a threat to man's superiority. And in this instance, events with Yamrak's tiger drew unnerving parallels to those rebellious sepoys involved in the Indian mutiny. And you can see a couple of the newspaper accounts there. Um, and the image in the centre, you can see, is published some 30 or 40 years after the account because it, was, it became a legendary thing in sort of East End uh, rhetoric. Now, the feelings of suspicion that surrounded the tiger had also escalated earlier in the century when the artefact known as Tipu's tiger, which you can see behind me here, um, was put on display at the East India Company Museum in 1808. Now, it's a mechanical toy with sound effects that mimic a tiger mauling an Englishman, and this struck horror in the uh, Victorian imagination. And then here you have Yamrak's own tiger on London streets, um, representing the same thing to many people. So images, I'm just going to go back one for you, like this one in the centre here, um, attempted to challenge these preconceptions that were in existence after this incident with Tipu's tiger, providing the much-needed reassurance that man could sub successfully subdue the tiger and remove the threat, whether you believe the threat to be the tiger or the threat in India. Um, and these images therefore captured a topical news story, but at the same time made subtle political statements about corresponding imperial events. Now, if any of you have wandered down to Tobacco Dock, um, you might have seen the statue um, that now memorialises this event and the accompanying plaque, which were instilled in the 1980s. And I think, for me, what this episode represents is, or highlights is a significant example of just how the exotic animal trade and businesses like Yamraks came to represent something far greater than the mere exchanging of goods and... and fascination with the exotic. Um, there's real political and economic and social and cultural themes all in here. Um, and I think that instant just sums them up in one. So to offer you a bit of a, a conclusion, Yamrak's business was a permanent feature on the Ratcliffe Highway for over 50 years. However, in the latter years of his life, he had to contend with complications that arose as a result of a decline in the trade. So that's the German competition, um, and later on, uh, the, the effects of war as well. And he became increasingly dependent on agents stationed in overseas ports. But while he attempted to continue to trade in animals, he downsized to a single premises and subsidized his profits by trading in antiquities, artifacts, and shells.
When he died on the 6th of September 1891, his business was taken over by his son Albert. You can see in the photograph um, in the top left to whom he left an inheritance of £7,106 in 8D, the value of which today equates to just under half a million pounds, and I think is testimony to Yamrak's um, abilities as a businessman. As his obituary in the Times stated, in his peculiar line of business, he had not perhaps a monopoly, but certainly the supremacy. He was both a businessman and a naturalist, who in the eyes of Victorian society made valuable contributions to their understanding of natural history. Um, and these photographs here come from an article that was published at the turn of the century, so in 1904 1905. Um, and they show the business under Albert's control. So you can see him sat rather smartly behind his desk. And there's striking family um, resemblance there. Um, and then there's a marabou, which is one of a series of images of some of the animals he had in stock at this time, photographed outside of the shop. And you can just see the children's fascination with this, this bird that they're, what, three or four feet away from. Um, even after 60 years of this business still being there, the children are still fascinated by these creatures. But on the flip side, you can also see, um, these are a bit, they're better on here, things are starting to look a bit sparse. They're not bustling with exotic creatures and they're not stacked roof to floor anymore. And, there's sort of a sense of it being a bit desolate, um, especially in the bottom one here. Most of those cages look to be pretty empty. So Albert continued to run the business until the First World War, when the trade, as it know, had been known, collapsed. And we can see here a rather sad-looking um, image of Yamraks, taken in about 1925, which shows the abandoned and boarded-up premises in 179-180 St George's Street, as it had later become known. By the mid-20th century, the animal trade began to evolve and became largely centred on the exchange of animals through breeding and conservation programmes, and various organisations were established um, in the hope of preventing the further extinction of species. Unfortunately, however, animals remained the third most illegally traded commodity um, after drugs and weapons in modern society, and men with businesses similar to Yamraks um, still exist in today's world, and the commercial animal trade is still going strong. And for me, that's what I found both most fascinating and appalling in the research that I've done, that there are still such strong comparisons to be made between the 21st century and the Victorian period. When I began this research three years ago, um, I'd expected to find that our relationship had significantly changed the way in which we view exotic animals and the way we treat them and the way, just our attitude in general, really. But in fact, I'm constantly shocked at how this doesn't appear to be the case. Um, and just as a bit of a, a solemn note to, to end with, um, I very recently read in a Born Free article um, about Born Free publication, how the illegal pet trade um, in cheetahs soared in recent years um, as they've become symbols of wealth um, to be owned by uh, people in the Middle East. Um, you know, border control and animal charities are doing their very best, but the percentage is about 70% of the animals they intercept on their way. Already, it's already too late that they've died. And those statistics aren't that far different from the ones I gave you earlier, where it's one in 
five coming back alive, so 80% of one consignment dying. Um, and I just ask you to think that here you are, here is the Victorian menagerie at its height, and yet actually in parts of London, this is still going strong. Um, and should we not be doing more to depart ourselves from this Victorian relic? Thank you. Thank you for that, Elle. That was fascinating. I've certainly learned a lot more about that end of town than I uh, have ever imagined might be roaming around there. I'm glad there's not too many tigers these days when we have to go and visit uh, our colleagues at the Royal London Hospital. Um, we'd be very happy to take any questions, that being the Royal We, because I don't know anything about the subject. So I'll hand over to Elle. Yeah, well, when the sailors were bringing back the animals, this is something I would really, I'm trying to get my teeth into um, and understand what was going on the other end. Um, but it seems that most of the things that were coming back were sort of small animals, so monkeys, parrots, birds, the things that wouldn't take up too much room. Um, captains were as involved in the trade as the sailors themselves, so I think it was probably a perk of the job, a way of earning a bit of extra money on the side. Um, and... I can't remember what I was going to... There was another point I had. Leave it with me. I might come back to it. That is a very good question. I don't know if I'm being completely honest with you. Um, it's very difficult to track what's coming in um, because they're not included on ship manifestos because they were additional things. They weren't meant to be on the ship. There was no insurance for them. Um, so I'm in the process of trying to find specific ships and specific dates of when things were coming in um, to go and spend some time at the Museum of London Docklands and just see what's coming in, who's bringing it in, those sorts of questions. That's, that's where I'd like the research to go next. Okay. Um, a good reporting sailor would be um, Brian Mountain, British gentleman, ex-Sydney in other words. Um, and I'm wondering, um, since they do carry the name on that, whether Yana had his own specimen. Because as a rule, um, a specimen would carry the name of his specimenist um, or the sailor room of the port to sailors or something like that. So I just wonder whether he you know, had his own specimen. Are these specimens as in the name of the species is Yamrak, or is no. this is where they're coming from? Okay. So um, i just been asked um, about the specimens and the fish specimens in the Natural History Museum um, carrying the name Yamrak. Um, and rightly so, a lot of uh, specimens, once they're mounted, will carry the name of the taxidermist. Um, I don't know if he had a relationship with a particular taxidermist at the moment. Um, but in the Natural History Museum archive, there's um, a great letter about, a Cape, I think it's a Cape Cod, um, and they're talking about um, how it's being preserved. So I think part of how he preserves them, it's actually done 
in the field, as it were. So hunters and collectors are being trained to do it out there and rather than come back. So I don't, I don't, again, I don't know. So if it was already done, maybe it would carry Yamrak's name. Again, another great question. Another, another angle for the research. Yeah. Yeah, health risks is a very good point because obviously we have such strict uh, quarantine periods and things now. Um, I wonder if it was really known about. Um, there doesn't seem to be any restrictions on what's coming in. Um, there doesn't seem to be any treatment of what I've looked at. Um, he doesn't seem to ever mention disease particularly. Um, he might be questioning why something's died, but he'll just pass it on. I think he's very much the middleman. He's not too bothered about what a species might have or what might be ailed with. He just wants to pass it on and leave it to the, the people that know what they're doing. Um, again, I should have bought a pen. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, no, that means I have to listen to myself. Hi. Gentlemen. diets um lots of meat um and if anything died rather than waste it it would then be fed to something else um again knowledge was pretty primitive um it's lots of vegetables lots of meat anything that he can source locally um i think he never successfully managed to bring a koala in um because they didn't understand about its dependence on eucalyptus um but other things, I think they just may do. Um, things tended to have quite a short lifespan. So I think, again, knowledge, he wanted to keep it alive while he had it. But what happened once it had left him, I don't think he felt particularly bothered about. He'd got his money, he'd got his sale. So, yeah, it's treat it as you can see. I mean, I don't know. No, that one doesn't show you any feeding. But it's like the crocodile one. I mean, that's being, I think, if I remember, that's not meat, that's a rock. Um, that it's trying to, they're trying to open its stomach to encourage it to eat. So I think it's just do what you can and keep it alive. So, hi. Yeah, I think it, he had a, it, it, accounts go he had a menagerie in Cheney Walk um, and there's kind of a great description of it um, by somebody that, a friend of his that wrote about him after the time. Um, and yeah, he had various different Australian animals. Most of them were Australian. I think there were some wallabies. Um, and part of me wants to say there was also an elephant that he used to train to wash windows, but I can't remember if that's a... A real or not, I can't remember, but it's great. Hi. What's the 
I tried to have a look in their archive. Um, preliminary inquiries would suggest not. Um, I don't know why. Um, there doesn't seem to be any archive material there that might indicate exchanges. Um, so I don't know. But it's another, another great... I w in many ways, there's great scope to continue with this research. Um, and I was very reluctant to give it up and follow Rothschild. So this is an ongoing project, I think, for me. So I will definitely make notes of these suggestions and follow them up because I just think he's such a fantastic figure. Um, but he only appears very in like fleeting references and lots of different places. So it's taken me a while to consolidate all that to bring it together in some coherent form, and I think it's just going to grow, hopefully. He is, um, but I think also Womwell, George Womwell there, with the line on the top of his. I don't know if Yamrak had a huge funeral procession. There's lots of obituaries written by lots of people, um, but where have you heard about Chris, out of interest? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'm pretty sure George Womwell's out that way, and he was the big menagerist of the time. He had sort of three or four different branches run by wives and, and and sons and family members, and I know he was very sort of ostentatious in his sort of celebration, and he's got a huge lion sat on top of his like um, tomb. So I don't know. I, I've scoured newspaper archives, and I hadn't found anything about a procession. Um, but again, it's, it's on the list. <laughs> Thank you. One more? If there's one. Okay. Cool. Thanks. Well, thank you to Elle again. And um, always good that the audience questions generates more work for our researchers. Um, and I hope she continues looking in our archives to see if there is something that we can find. Um, thank you for coming. I hope you've enjoyed the talk. Um, I forgot to say at the beginning, we are experimenting with a slightly different presentation in terms of our stage text uh, captioning. And so apologies for anyone who's got their head stuck right behind that top uh, projector. It will be sorted by the next time you come to see us, which hopefully will be on Tuesday, the 6th of October, uh, 1 o'clock, as usual, here in the library. And our colleague, Caroline Smith, is joining us from uh, Bethlehem Hospital to talk about uh, the collections there and the new museum that uh, recently opened, the Museum of the Mind. Um, as ever, uh, please do fill in your feedback forms. We do read them, and we try to make changes where we can. The only thing we're really difficult to do is to change the chairs. So you might want to bring a cushion if it was a bit uncomfortable this time. Apologies. So please join me in thanking Elle one more time. Thanks. Thank you.